And we are just cruising through the book of Revelation. It seems pretty rapidly now. Few weeks left in the book. And uh, we're going to be studying today the millennial reign and the last battle. Okay. Um, A couple Christmases ago, two Christmases ago, I thought it'd be a great idea to get Russell the 1000 piece Star Wars jigsaw puzzle for Christmas. And um, 1000 piece puzzles are hard. I don't know if you know that. I'm more of like a 65 piece guy. Hundreds probably a little much for me. But, you know, we got this special piece of plywood and put it on the kitchen table so that we could move this puzzle around, you know, depending on the progress. And, you know, you start out and, of course, there's nothing put together and you shoot for those edge pieces first and you kind of get those edge pieces put together. That's a great accomplishment, right? And then you start heading for the easy objects, just the things that, all right, the bright red pieces or something that goes a shining light or something, you know, a lightsaber that clearly goes in a certain spot on the puzzle, But, you know, as months went by, that darn puzzle probably had 400 pieces put together and then sat there and sat there and sat there until we just, I couldn't do anymore. I didn't, it was not within my capacity, you know. And when you're studying Bible prophecy, that's a bit how you feel, right? When you're studying eschatology and end times, it's, it's a little by, oh yeah, you know, we got the edge pieces. We got a general idea. You know, there's concurrence among most Bible believing scholars that we've got at least this going for us, you know, and then there's all these abstract pieces. And what's cool is that as we're going through revelation, you know, from our futuristic standpoint, We're beginning to get pieces put in the middle. And I'm not saying at all that I've got all of them together. I think there's a lot of puzzle pieces that to me, I just, I'm going to be seeing Jesus face to face. And I'm going to go, oh, right. Told you. And then, you know, when we meet each other in the air, I'll be like, oh, you were right, weren't you? You know, uh, and, and yeah, you also know that there's, it's so refreshing when, You have those jigsaw puzzle pieces, and there's one open hole in the middle of many, and you're able to take a piece and just, you're like, oh, it kind of goes in here, and you rotate it, doesn't work, rotate it, doesn't work, rotate it, slips right in there. Isn't that kind of a refreshing, satisfying, Russell's really into saying satisfying right now. I think it's a word that our youth use. Isn't that satisfying? I'm like, yeah, it is. Making that noise is satisfying, right? But... If you're also like me, you get to that one open piece and you rotate, rotate, and then you just start hammering on it, right? And you rotate and you hammer and eventually it fits because you hammered it enough, right? And we want to be careful with our eschatology that we're not just hammering something in that just you're you're way off, you know? And so it, it takes humility to teach eschatology and there ought to be no undue dogmatism especially as we come to another controversial part within the church, which is the millennial reign, all right? The millennial reign. Now, the main idea of this text is that after the tribulation, Jesus will establish his millennial kingdom with the saints or with his saints. Then he will finally and forever judge Satan and Satan's followers for their rebellion, In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus' disciples say after his resurrection, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Now, Jesus didn't rebuke them for having some sort of a desire, you know, to, uh, or rather that there would be any sort of kingdom. He didn't squash their hopes of a kingdom, but he said, you just don't know when it's going to be. Those times aren't up to you. You don't really need to worry about it. Just go about my business. Now, before we look at the specifics of the millennium, there's another important prophetic puzzle piece that fits right between what we studied last week, the return of the king, the second coming, and the millennial reign, and that's the sheep and the goats judgment of Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Many believe that when Jesus comes back, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, destroys the Antichrist and his army, Anyone else who survives on the earth and is in a way kind of caught up from the four corners of the earth, as the Olivet Discourse says, and comes into Jerusalem, Christians, non-Christians, Jews and Gentiles, they're going to be judged on how they treated the people of God. Okay, And there's this separation between the sheep and the goats, and, uh, and there are going to be some who are cast into the lake of fire at that point. It's kind of this middle judgment that happens right before the millennial reign. And then comes the thousand-year period where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. Now, I'm going to kind of give you just a few different perspectives of uh, people who love the Lord and um, one of those is called premillennialism. Okay, premillennialism. Uh, millennium, we all know that, especially in these days and age, days and age, right? Millennials. <laughs> I'm not one, by the way. I'm, I think I'm like X or something like that. The end of X. I'm with Perry. You and me, man. Same generation, I think. Okay, you look your X all the way. I can tell by your highlighted sideburns. Okay. Uh, Millennial, how am I being mean to you? You're such a good bro. All right. Now, Latin for a thousand years is millennium. Of course, pre means before, and it's speaking about the second coming happening before the millennium, before the thousand year reign. Okay, that's premillennialism. Uh, then there's amillennialism. Ah, or a, atheist means no God. Ah, millennial means no millennial. It is that uh, a camp that believes in no literal reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Let me give you a few points of ah, millennialism. It's that the millennium uh, kingdom reign of Christ and his saints is in existence uh, for the period of time between Jesus's first and second coming. So what that means is that right now we are in the millennial reign. So let's just give a hand because we are in the millennial right now. Okay, that's, we're in the millennial reign. Seems like it, right? Ah, oh, it's just so great that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, and there's Satan is bound. It's just a beautiful thing, because that's another thing they believe, is that Satan is bound right now, which isn't super consistent with the New Testament, except most of the believing of the binding of Satan relates, relates to Satan's inability to stop the preaching of the gospel and the mission movement. So most of millennials, they don't really believe Satan's bound. It's just that he is less able to hinder the missions movement. Okay. Uh, the all millennials believe God's promise to Israel were conditional and that they've been transferred to the church 
uh, because Israel did not meet the condition of obedience. So the church has replaced Israel and God's plan for Israel. Jesus is reigning. Satan is bound. And now we're reaching the world with the gospel. Uh, one man once said, if Satan has already been bound, it must really be on a long chain. Okay. And one other preacher said, if this is the millennium, I want a refund. Okay. Uh, now, there are some texts to support amillennialism, Matthew 12, 29, Luke 10, 17 through 19. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy and nothing by any means shall harm you. And just kind of that aspect of like, look, you got power over Satan. And so in that sense, he's bound in that way. Um, and then the amillennialists would also believe that Christ is ruling now in heaven where he's seated on the throne of David heavenly. And Satan is bound in that way. Then there is post-millennialism, or maybe if there's some middle schoolers in here, post-malonism. No, not post-malonism. Land and don't be listening to that guy, okay? You'll have tattoos on your eyebrows the next time I see you. Okay, no, post-malone is a singer in case you're wondering. No, post-millennialism. Tough crowd today. Okay. You were singing good, but you're, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm off. Okay, post-millennial, so post speaks of the second coming happening post-millennium, so after the millennium. Uh, It believes that the church is not the kingdom, but it will bring in the kingdom. Uh, Utopia, Christianized condition to the earth by preaching the gospel. Many liberals argue from this principle that the millennium will come through human effort, through natural process, or an evolutionary process even. Um, They do not expect a literal and historical second coming, while evangelical premillennialists certainly do expect one. Um, Postmillennialists believe that Christ will not be on the earth during his kingdom reign, but he will rule in the hearts of the people and he will return to the earth after the millennium. Uh, They don't believe that the millennium actually lasts for a literal thousand years. That's just symbolic for a long period of time, similar to amillennialism. Uh, And also believing that the church, not Israel, will receive the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and even to David. They'll receive it in a spiritual sense. Uh, One man wrote, though this view, uh, post-millennialism, is not popular today, it has been hugely influential in the history of the church, including playing a significant role in launching the modern missions movement. Uh, and so just kind of a little bit there, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, might have a few of different ones in this group. Uh, my conviction in studying the word, going through Revelation many times and teaching through it, I, I teach it from a premillennial, and you, you probably have picked up on that over um, the course of time, and yet I do have just humility, understanding there's a lot of smart Bible-believing guys, they're just trying to understand the word and uh, exalt Christ, so we love one another, we honor one another, we respect one another, even though there may be disagreements. This isn't a tight-handed, closed-handed issue. But uh, in, in my understanding, in the books that I'm reading, the best interpretation practices will lead you to a premillennial understanding. Uh, it's the view that honors a normal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic, while recognizing the prophetic and apocalyptic nature in the book of Revelation. 
The word millennium occurs six times in our scripture today, verses one through seven. Uh, Never in scripture is the word millennium used uh, when the word year is a number, not literally a thousand years. Um, The two resurrections mentioned in verses four through seven clearly speak of physical bodily resurrections. All of this is supported in premillennialism. And so it's been said that if the first sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense lest you come up with nonsense. Okay. And so in interpretation practices, literal, historical, um, contextual, all of these things, grammatical, uh, premillennial, in my opinion, uh, makes really good sense. And so that's how I'll be teaching it from a perspective as we go through here. Um, the Bible speaks powerfully to other aspects of a millennial earth. Tragically, though, through history, uh, the church has ignored or denied the promise of a millennial reign of Jesus. The early church up until Augustine almost universally believed in an earthly historical reign of Jesus for a thousand years that would be initiated by his return at the second coming. David Guzik writes, Tychonius in the late 300s was the first to influentially champion a spiritualized interpretation, saying that this millennium is now amillennialism and must be understood as a spiritual reign of Jesus, not a literal reign on the earth. His view was adopted by Augustine, the Roman Catholic Church, and most Reformation theologians or Reformed theologians. All in all, there are more than 400 verses in more than 20 different passages in the Old Testament that deal with this time when Jesus Christ will rule and reign personally over planet Earth. We do believe that the kingdom is now. It's part of the mystery of the New Testament. And yet part of the mystery is that there's things that are not yet about the kingdom that will come in fullness when Jesus comes back. Um, Jesus is going to come personally, nationally, and cosmically. It's been said premillennialism makes the most sense because of its consistency and in interpretation. Since the prophecies about Christ's first advent were fulfilled literally, the prophecies about his second advent can be expected to be fulfilled in the same way. When you look at the Psalms, there are many Psalms that speak of a future eschatological, and if you're new, eschatology, eschatological means the understanding of end times or the studying of end times stuff, okay? feel sorry for you if you're like, this is your first week here. You're like, ah, they are weird, you know? Was there any doubt? Okay. All right. But the Psalms speak of, who was that? Future end times stuff so often. Uh, and the future kingdom uh, patterned in the David kingdom or the Davidic kingdom uh, is predicted in the Psalms. Psalms 221, 45, Psalm 272, Psalms 296, 98, 110. Uh, those are chapters rather. Isaiah 2, 9, 11, 24, 40, 43, 44, 65, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34. Um, there's this, there's these great 
Old Testament passages having to do with uh, a future messianic reign on the earth. The new covenant are promises of Jesus's kingdom that are not yet fully realized. New covenant promises like Isaiah 59, 20, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11, 16, 36, 37. We're going to look at a lot of these, but there's just many verses that speak of a future new covenant promises for the people of Israel even. Uh, these covenant promises state that God will cause Israel to repent and be obedient, that God will, God will cleanse and forgive Israel, that the Holy Spirit will permanently indwell his people Israel, that Israel will be permanently established forever in their land as a nation, that God will be worshipped by Israel and will place his presence among them forever. The words of Jesus speak towards premillennialism. Uh, with the disciples ruling and reigning with him, judging Paul speaks of uh, a premillennial hope that Israel will all be saved one day and that the gifts and callings of God towards Israel are irrevocable. There's a future hope for Israel during the time of the millennial reign. Okay, now let's just go to our text and we'll kind of see it unfold a bit in front of us. Then I saw an angel, Revelation 21 Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Uh, So we have this phrase that says, then I saw. Okay, It's actually a more important phrase than you might think. Happens repeatedly towards the end of Revelation. But here it lands right after the second coming, the battle of Armageddon. Right after the second coming comes the millennium. There's a chronological sequence here. There's a chronological progression here. The language in the Greek literally speaks of these things happening one after another. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So we don't know who this angel is, and I think that's on purpose, because it just goes ahead and shows the final importance of Satan. Jesus didn't have to bring out the big guns. He didn't have to take care of this. He didn't have to have Michael the archangel or Gabriel do it. Just an angel. Hey, go take care of this. You know, go take care of this Satan. Go take care of this devil and go and take the chain and bind him. This angel has the key to the bottomless pit. Bottomless pit. It's what my mom called me in middle school. I would eat anything. Had a hollow leg. Literally, it speaks of the shaft of the pit. This angel has the keys. And the abyss is always a reference to a temporal place of incarceration for certain demons. It's not their final place of judgment. That's the lake of fire this is a place of torment that the angels and the uh, that the demons in the gospel did not want to be sent. The angel had a great chain in his hand, a chain for imprisonment, a, ch- a huge chain for a huge prisoner. And verse two, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him 
for a thousand years. So he arrests this dragon, he seizes the dragon, and a list of names are given for this dragon, just like in a court of law when a judge is laying down the sentence for a murderer. If you've ever watched, you know, those cases on TV, you know, they, they list the, the guilty, the accused, full name as they pronounce the sentence upon them. And here is this great description, just so it's clear, who is being cast into this abyss. It is the serpent of old, known as the ancient snake from the Garden of Eden, who deceived Eve with his craftiness. He's this serpent in the Hebrew, the Naha. The snake, the dragon, the seraph. Interestingly enough, the seraphim that we read of in Isaiah and Ezekiel come from that Hebrew word seraph, which means serpent or snake. Im is plural, which tells us a little bit in the study in the Hebrew that the um, these seraphim in heaven have some sort of a serpent-like look. It kind of changes your mind about snakes when you understand how God created angels. And it's not an, uh, a bad thing that uh, the devil came as a serpent. He was a serif. He was this serpenty type angelic creature. It's kind of, you get into the Hebrew, it's really a crazy thing. The seraphim were serif. It's the same word for serpent. Kind of crazy, huh? Uh, so anyways, that just got us way off track, and now everyone's looking up on their phone. <laughs> Define weirdo. Okay. If that's just a little bit crazy, we see that that serpent in the Genesis account was very cunning, and we think, ah, yeah, the cunning serpent. But cunning also isn't a bad thing. Uh, it speaks of that he's clever, and he's shrewd, and he's prudent, and sensible. Now, he used that in a bad, evil way, but this serif, this serpent, he's the serpent of old who the New Testament says deceives and w- did deceive and will deceive. We'll see that word a lot in our text today. Uh, so he was the serpent, and he's also the devil, the diabolos in the Greek, diabolical. Speaks of him being a slander, a wicked person, accusing the people of God falsely. We see that in Job chapter 1, 6 through 11, how he's just going to and fro, accusing the people of God before God. It's also a name given to him in Revelation 20 is the, this name Satan. And it's not so much a name as it is a description. Whenever Old Testament or New, the word Satan is used, it always has the word the in front of it. Okay, Um, And it doesn't flow right in the grammar, and so the English Bibles don't put it in there. But if you were to read the Hebrew or the Greek, it's the Satan, the Satan, the Satan. It's not his name, it's what he does. And it speaks of him being an opposer, always in opposition uh, to God, to God's plan, to God's work, and to us. He is our arch enemy who hates us and lives for our misery, lives for our death, lives for our destruction. What does this angel, no-named angel do? Takes that big chain and binds the serpent, the dragon, the devil, the Satan for a thousand years. Ties him up, binds him, imprisons him. Prophesied of in Isaiah 24, 21 through 22 said of in 2 Peter 2, 4, that God didn't spare those demons who sinned, the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness, 
lot of those demons, those uh, dark angels, have already been in this type of captivity for thousands and thousands of years. Jude 6 tells us that the angels that did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So we're at that time, the judgment of the great day, but it's not over yet. The Satan is going to be thrown in with them for a thousand year period. All right. Um, I think it was uh, the exalting Jesus and revelation commentary that wrote uh, through mounts. Apparently a thousand years of confinement does not alter Satan's plans nor does a thousand years of freedom from the influence of wickedness change people's basic tendency to rebel against the creator. So for a thousand year period, we're going to see from this point on Satan is bound into the bottomless pit. And you would think he'd cool off a little bit, kind of cool his jets and like chill out. Like what have I done? Boy, that was a colossal train wreck. I'm really sorry. Is there any way we can undo all of this? You know, no, he's just like for a thousand years. He's like, I'm just going to get out of one day. I'm going to get him. And I've read the Bible. I know I'm going to get out in a little bit. You know, what's a thousand years among 6,000 years, you know? And he's just, that's exactly, I mean, I've seen it. Crickets. Did you guys hear crickets? nor does a thousand years of bliss cause all of the people that will dwell on the earth to be like, man, what was that Satan guy all about? That was a weird time in human history. It's so wonderful here. If I was in the garden of Eden, I would never sin against God. We're going to see that that's also not true in just a little bit. So let's look at verse three cast this angel cast Satan into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. Lots of verbs happening here. Cast shut set so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So he's thrown, he's cast and poured into this nether world and uh, sealed up, and he doesn't have this ability to do what he's done for the last 6,000 years, trick the nations to worship other gods uh, instead of Yahweh. How long will the Satan be unable to deceive the nations any longer? Till the thousand years were finished, our text says there in verse 3. So, till the th- six times, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Um, It's interesting, as I did my word studying this week, this thousand-year time period is a very important designation of time. And the literal definition of a thousand years is, quote, the number 1,000 dot, 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 years. (laughs) Okay, it's just in case you're like, the number 1,000, okay, are you ready for it? Years. Okay, so how long is Satan going to be bound? We're getting it. Okay, we're getting it. Okay. Now we move on to, uh, it says, after these things, he must be released for a little while. So there's a little bit of a spoiler alert that's going to happen in just a few verses for Micros Kronos, this little while Satan is going to be released. It's necessary that he would be loosed and untied and, and set free, but it's going to be a really unimportant amount of time. I mean, you'll blink and it'll be over. 
And then it hops back into our, our tale here in verse 4. The saints reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 4, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God who'd not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So one of my first questions as I read this was, so I saw thrones and they sat on them. So you should probably ask the question, who's they? Okay. Who's they? And Judgment was committed to them. Who's them, right? Who's the subject of this? Um, I believe it's a few different groups that we know from the New Testament. Number one, the 12 disciples, okay? Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the millennial reign, Jesus is ruling on the throne of David. The 12 disciples are going to help rule the, the nation of Israel. Okay. Uh, in Luke twenty two twenty eight through 30, but you are those who've continued with me in my trials and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed upon one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the first group I believe it's sitting on the thrones are the 12 disciples uh, the believers, secondly, believers, New Testament Christians, one thing the believers are going to be doing are judging angels. First Corinthians six, three, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Right, so I believe that, uh, New Testament Christians that had been raptured, we're in heaven for seven years, marriage supper of the lamb, united with Jesus, come back during the second coming with him, uh, watch him defeat his foes, setting up his throne in Jerusalem, uh, that we will be a part of this ruling, judging angels and things pertaining to this life. Revelation 2.26 says, he who overcomes and keeps my words until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. So uh, part of the faithful church overcoming will be uh, that they will have this reward of being on the thrones, uh, being part of the thrones that are set up during the millennial reign. Revelation 5.10, I believe that this speaks of saints, Christians ruling over the natural born people who will just progress through the tribulation period and into that thousand year reign. Christians will have a part in uh, leading those individuals and pointing them towards following Jesus in that kingdom. Uh, moving right on through this verse four, uh, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded. So we also see the martyrs. We see those who had been faithful during the tribulation period. They did not bow to the antichrist. They did not worship the antichrist or receive his mark. Um, and so they would be killed for that. Antichrist will kill them. Um, but Jesus puts their head back on them really nicely and sews it on really good. And there's barely a scar. And here they are ruling and reigning. We were all thinking it like, well, what happened to the heads? And I think he put them back on because <clears throat> here they're with him and, and they're part of the ministry and the ruling that's taking place there. All right. Verse five, 
But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So again, thousand years are mentioned and a group of dead people that are not living. They're still dead. They're still in Hades. But once those thousand years are done, they will be resurrected. Okay. Now, all of the resurrection that, that John has spoken of so far, any life and resurrection life is part of the first resurrection. Okay. Uh, so that includes Jesus's resurrection. He's called the first fruits of those who would be resurrected. That includes those who would be raptured in the church and be uh, in the, the church that would be raptured and be given glorified bodies. That resurrection is part of the first resurrection. And there's a third part of the first resurrection. You guys are all following me, right? And it's this millennial reign resurrection, okay? That happens with the martyred people from the tribulation. And, um, and, uh, and so we've got Jesus's resurrection. We've got the rapture of the church, which is a resurrection. And we've got this group who will rule and reign during the millennial reign. That is the first resurrection. It encompasses from Jesus until this point. It's all considered the first resurrection. Donald Barnhouse says, of the phrase first resurrection, it must be especially emphasized that our phrase in the apocalypse covering this resurrection is a retrospect that looks back over all three phases of resurrection, Jesus rapture millennial Walverd who wrote a book on Bible interpretation says the first resurrection is not even is not an event but an order of resurrection, including all the righteous who are raised from the dead before the millennial kingdom begins. Now, it says this is the first resurrection. And so where does it say this this is the second resurrection? And the answer to that is nowhere. Okay, it's not really said at any point that that, that there's a second resurrection per se. But at the end of our chapter, we're going to get to it next week. We will see the second resurrection, but it is a resurrection for judgment at the great white throne judgment. Now, everybody do this. Loosen your cheek muscles really good and go. Okay. All right. Scientifically proven to clear the mind. Okay. Verse six. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. It's a, such a happy, fortunate, sacred occasion to be a part of God's grace and his resurrection. If you're a believer here today, then you will be a part of this first resurrection. You'll have a share in it. And you'll have a share in the millennial reign of Christ when he reigns here on this earth. It's crazy. It's going to happen one day. And it might only be seven years away if the Lord comes back, like tonight. Like just seven years from now, he'll be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and we'll all be there. Can you believe that it could happen that quickly? It's a very exciting thing. His kingdom come, his will be done as we pray in the Lord's prayer. But for those who have a part in the first resurrection, follow me, the second death has no power. 
right? If you have your part in the first resurrection, the second death will have no power. What are you? This is just... Got to bring notepad to church and draw pictures because it really helps. All right. <clears throat> have you heard about being born again by chance? In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, a guy named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Guys, Nicodemus thought what you're thinking right now, like, get born again. Like, gotta go, you know, man, seems really difficult. And Jesus says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, aye, aye, aye. Okay. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Okay, so there's a water birth, which is, you know, when the water breaks, you guys know, the the woman's labor, okay? And then there's a birth of the spirit when you are born again. When you put your trust in Jesus as your savior to wash away your sins and you bow your heart to him as the Lord and master of your life so that you will go wherever he desires you to go. He's your, he's your Lord and savior. Then the Bible speaks of him taking out your old heart of stone that was hard and couldn't beat and couldn't know God. And he would put into you a heart of flesh that would, that would just bring you alive so that you would know who God is and you would want to live for God and you could understand God. You'd be born again. You would have the Holy Spirit placed inside of you and you would have power and life everlasting. So I ask you today, have you been born again? Have you put your trust in Jesus in a way that you've realized you're a sinner? He died for your sins. He'll wash your sins away, make you squeaky clean, and give you a heart to follow hard after him for the rest of your life. Have you been born again? Today you can be. Today you can put your trust in Jesus. You can turn from your sins, and you can begin living for him today and glorifying his name. It's been said If you are born once, you'll die twice. So if you're born out of your mother's womb, and that's the only birth you ever have your entire life, you're going to die from the, no, you're going to die from whatever might come your way. Tough crowd today. (laughs) Or not, you might not die, we might get raptured, okay? But you would die that one time, okay? Heart attack, bus, you know, whatever it might be, okay? Himalayan bus going off the side of the mountain. Okay. No? Okay. (laughs) Just preparing all of us. Okay. So you die once. Okay. But then we read of this second death. All right. You will be resurrected in the second resurrection only to die a second death where you're sent to hell. And the end of our chapter day says this is the second death. You're born once. You die twice. Okay? But if you're born twice, water, womb, okay? Born again by the Spirit, you may only just die once. Himalaya, however it might go down. Okay? 
You may only die once, or you might not die at all. Jesus could come back today, rapturing us into heaven, you never die. Like, that would be exciting, right? Is anyone kind of down for that? Just maybe, let's just say, what if the Lord wanted to do that that way? I'm cool with that. All right? So, if you're born once, you will die twice. You will be hurt by the second death, and it is hell forever. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the smoke of your torment will rise forever and ever. That is scary. That ought to sober us up very quickly to say, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and you will be forgiven. You'll be washed clean and you'll be giving a new heart and a new mind. So too, if you're a part of the first resurrection, you will not be a part of this second death. In the next three minutes and 15 seconds, I want to give you some additional insights into the thousand-year reign. Lazion says, the question could be asked, why will there ever even need to be a millennial kingdom on earth? Why don't we just go to heaven and call it a day? For several reasons. In the beginning, God created the world, mankind, and the environment to be perfect in holiness and harmony. But when mankind chose to sin, it brought about a curse that ruined everything. Having achieved the most important work of salvation, God will restore the earth to what it once was, to what it was created to be. Okay? And so in the millennial reign, we are going to see changes in the earth's ecosystem. We're going to see a quality of life. We're going to see lifestyle changes, okay? For a thousand years, a millennium, the earth will be restored to its original beauty. The whole world will be the Garden of Eden or Hawaii without the tourists and the sharks, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 22 says that all of creation is longing for this. The language says that creation is craning its neck and groaning for the revelation of the sons of God because it is ready for this day to come. It is ready for the healing from our sin and will especially be ready for the healing after the tribulation curse takes place. There will be longer periods of sunshine in the millennial reign. Isaiah 30 verse 26. The light of the moon will be the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. So there will be longer periods of sunshine. There will be no more hostility between animals and men. Isaiah eleven six through 9 says that the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the nursing child shall play with the cobra in the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall all not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So for those of you that are vegan or vegetarians, this is going to be your day. You're going to be like, sweet, nothing but lettuce. Okay. In the millennium, eHarmony will not be a dating service. It will refer to elephants, eagles, and elk all hanging out together, okay? There will be no more birth defects. 
Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Man will live longer. A hundred years will be like a little child. We're going to go back to Adam and Eve style living, guys. People that live on the earth will be living for 800, 900 years, okay? No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who's not fulfilled his days. Isaiah 65, 20, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. People will have access to Jesus. Isaiah chapter two, verses two through four. There will be no more war. Praise God. That's Isaiah 2, 4. No war because there will be no devil and no war because Jesus won't allow it. Israel will realize their part in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Israel will be acquitted of her sin and dwell with the Lord. Joel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Israel will be planted and not pulled up. Isaiah chapter 9. Excuse me, verses 11 through 15. Israel will walk in the name of the Lord forever. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. These are all promises referring to the millennial reign of Jesus and how God will deal with uh, Gentiles or Israel and or both at the same time. Here's some interesting fun things about the millennial millennium. The raptured church, church and tribulation saints will reign with Jesus. We read that in our text today. I think this is the 13th thing I've got for you. A strange mix of people will populate the planet. They're going to be the rednecks of the millennium. Are you guys ready for it? They are tribulation survivors who will populate the planet. They will live alongside resurrected saints who are ruling and reigning with Christ. The tribulation survivors will give birth to children Children with sinful natures, just like you and me, they'll populate the planet. And even without the devil around anymore, they're still going to end up sinning. And in the end, some of them will actually choose to follow the devil. However, for the most of that thousand years, the devil made me do it will no longer be an excuse because the devil is bound in the bottomless pit. Even though their fathers and mothers would go to Jerusalem once a year to worship Jesus and hang out with him, the love of many of these kids will grow cold and they will become either lukewarm or decide not to follow Jesus. Fourteenth thing about this millennial reign, among these people with sinful natures, Satan is going to lead a rebellion and God allows it. It will prove once more that man, whatever his advantages or his environment, apart from the grace of God and a new birth, remains at his heart only evil and at war with God. Charles Spurgeon says, let us rejoice that scripture is so clear and so explicit upon this great doctrine of the future triumph of Christ over the whole world. We believe that the Jews will be converted and that they will be restored to their own land. We believe that Jerusalem will be the central metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that all the nations shall walk in the light of the glorious city which shall be built at Jerusalem. We expect that the glory which shall have its center there shall spread over the whole world 
covering it as with a sea of holiness, happiness, and delight. For this we look with joyful expectation. Anybody with me? Looking forward to that? Whoa, no way. You know, what is your problem? Of course. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the Lord will set up his kingdom, the throne of the father David, the promises of Abraham fulfilled through the seed, the blessing coming upon the whole earth through Jesus, the king of the Jews and the king of the Gentiles who have been grafted into the promise to the Jews by grace. We Gentiles can rejoice in that. We're going to close out quick because my alarm just went off on my wrist. A satanic rebellion will be crushed in this final battle. Verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. For a thousand years, he hasn't been leading nations astray, and he gets an opportunity once again, and nations follow him. From the north, south, east, and from the west, he who deceives the whole world is having his way again. Gog and Magog Magog follow him. It's a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's a battle that takes place, and and many of scholars within my circle believe that, that battle will actually take place before the rapture. Um, but you know, I don't have a huge opinion on that. Gog and Magog are mentioned, however, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a phrase for the enemies of God among the nations of the world. They're going to gather together, uh, and they're going to have a huge number, as many as the sand of the sea, verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. I mean, it just looks like Jerusalem is doomed, doesn't it? Satan's got armies from all the nations number of them is the sand of the sea and they surround jerusalem and the camp it just sounds so humble you know the camp of um the people uh surround the camp of the saints and that beloved city jerusalem and just like in the same verse it just says and fire came down from god out of heaven and devoured them (laughs) well i guess we're done here um You know, it's not so much a battle as an execution. Like the enemies of God are destroyed. And in that moment, it was shown that even if you're raised in a Christian home, in the Garden of Eden type environment, you need to be regenerated and born again. Because even after living 900 years or 700 years and begetting children who beget children and repopulating the planet after the tribulation and Jesus is the king of the world, without a transformation of the heart, you will rebel against Jesus. And Jesus shuts her down every time. Jesus wins, you guys. Don't know if you caught that. So whether you're amillennialist, premillennialist, no millennialist, me millennialist, you millennial, whatever, Jesus wins, Right? And we cannot wait for that day. And uh, verse 10, the devil who deceives them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You guys, do you even understand what this is in the Bible right now? Like we're at the end of this whole story and way over here, homeboy, the devil comes in and just ruins everything. And all of this is him just still ruining everything. And then right here, 
he gets put in his place forever. He's done. Absolutely done. And he's paying for what he did. And we can rejoice in that. We'll have the worship team come back up now. Commentator John Trapp thought this eternal aspect of hell that says it is a torment. that's day and night forever and ever. There's no rest. And he says, John Trapp says it's so terrible. He calls it another hell in the midst of hell. Where forever and ever the fire burns. Walverd, who is the writer of this Bible, basic Bible interpretation, says forever and ever. Is this really eternal punishment for the devil? Yes, it is. The words mean exactly what they appear to mean. There would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than here in the mentioning of both day and night and the expression forever and ever, which literally means to the ages of ages. And so what that does is we put our Bibles aside and move towards worship. That ought to sober us up and humble us up. Sober us up and humble us up. That there will be a judgment for sin. That Jesus takes sin seriously. That all who would rebel against God, all who would refuse to receive him into their life as their Lord and as their Savior, they will perish. They will be destroyed. Next week when we get to chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, we're going to read of the great white throne judgment where there's judgment to all the individuals who have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And God in his grace has brought us here today. He's given us a peaceful opportunity and a peaceful moment to bow the knee of our hearts to him right now. And so I just want to encourage you today. If you are here and you hear God's voice, you hear the promises of God, you hear the future that is for those who would follow Jesus or rebel against Jesus, then today, if you would hear the voice of God, I plead with you. Humble yourself before him like a little child. Confess your sins to him. Turn from your sins. Acknowledge how wicked they are. Acknowledge that they're a front to him. And taste of the mercy of God today. Taste of the grace of God today. Receive the forgiveness of God today. And right now where you're at, if you would just put your faith, put your trust, put your rest in Jesus, you will not perish on that day, the day that we read of today, but you will have everlasting life. What an exciting thing it is to read of the demise of Satan, the devil, the dragon, the slanderer. We rejoice in that. Will you guys stand together with me?